Hi, everybody. This is Emily Trenum, the host of Memphis Metropolis. I'm away from the microphone this week, so we're rebroadcasting one of my favorite episodes. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM at Crosstown. And I'm the host, Emily Trenum. And this week, my guest is Caroline Carrico, who is the program manager and associate editor of Storyboard, a really awesome local publication you need to be paying attention to if you're not already. And maybe we'll talk about Storyboard for a minute in case people aren't familiar with it. But Storyboard recent recently wrote an article, Caroline recently wrote an article about the Gayoso Bayou. And because I'm a, I'm interested in infrastructure, as regular listeners might know, and especially historic infrastructure, just to get even more wonky. Um, I thought it'd be great to have Caroline on the show and just elaborate a little bit on the article. So welcome, Caroline. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So um, before we talk about Gayosa Bayou, I, mean, I feel like probably Memphis Metropolis and Storyboard have you know a decent amount of overlapping audience since there's a lot of coverage of the built environment. And but just just tell us what Storyboard is if people aren't familiar with it. Sure, Storyboard. We're a nonprofit multimedia production group, and so we have a quarterly magazine, a website, podcast, and coming to streaming TV, we'll have a TV show on Memphis centric. And we focus on our tagline is telling our stories. So we're focused on arts, culture, community, and history in Memphis and connecting people to our city through our authentic assets. Okay. That sounds great. Yeah. I'm, I've been a fan of of storyboard from the beginning because there's a lot of overlap in terms of neighborhoods and Overlap in terms of neighborhoods and neighborhood history. I know that you're doing a big multimedia extravaganza on Union Avenue. Yes. And I'm hoping to do a program on that at some point. I don't think I can do a four-part series or whatever storyboard's doing, but I would like to do a program on it because the history of Union Avenue is just really cool and it's just it's 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 worth telling. I agree. I'm I'm all up in it right now. <laughs> okay, well, good. Well, you can come back at some point and talk about that. Sounds like a plan. So, um, but today we're talking about Gayosa Bayou. I know this is probably a dumb question because I use the word bayou myself, and of course it's in songs, you know, that Linda Ronstadt song, Blue Bayou, but I'm not sure I know what a bayou really is, So, I, except that it's a waterway of some kind. So what's the definition of a bayou? So that's not a stupid question because that was my first research question that I had is what on earth is a bayou? So it's in the Southern United States, it's used to either refer to a swampy portion of a river or lake or a slow moving creek. 
in moving water. So for the Gayoso Bayou, it's that part of the definition about a slow moving creek that flows into a larger body of water. And what are some other, without, I don't want to digress too much, although I do like to digress. Um, what are some other, are there other sort of well-known or historic bayous that people have heard about in Memphis? So I think Lick Creek is probably one of the one of the more famous ones, especially since you can see that one. It's on the, if you're on the v Green Line, you cross over Lick Creek and there's that wonderful public art installation there. Where did all the fish go? And uh, if you look really closely, you can see some minnows in that one. And then I don't know if it's as as well known, but Cypress Creek that runs near kind of through Chickasaw Gardens area and over back behind the Pink Palace. That's another, I would say, fairly well known one. Okay. And I guess those all fall into this, the slow moving water category. Yes. I think we could consider them bayous. Okay. <laughs> as, opposed, as opposed just to swampy areas. As a, yeah. As opposed to a swampy area. So when I first saw Gayoso Bayou on a map, my brain was thinking swampy area, like I would think of more in like Louisiana bayous, as opposed to what it is, which is a creek that can get, it's usually slow moving, but in the, in a big rain event, it gets, becomes fast moving. Okay. So, so Gayosa Bayou is actually, you know, important in terms of, especially important in terms of, you know, how the city developed and I want to talk I want to talk about that, but first of all, sort of locate us I, and and understanding. Uh, we're going to talk more about this later. Most of Gayoso Bio is underground now, right? Um, but where where does it run more or less? It follows a lot of Danny Thomas Boulevard today, more or less. Uh, North Lauderdale Street goes right over. It's paved on top of the Gayoso Bayou. Uh, there's a section of it that's visible on A.W. Willis, which used to be called Auction. So that's one of the places where it's above ground. So the St. Jude Alsac campus is right on top of the stream bed. Um, it also flows through Laughlin Yard. So that's one area where it's been daylit. So what daylighting meaning took it, they took off the top part so you can actually see the creek running through. The so Laughlin Yard did that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yard did okay. That. That's cool. And there's a if you if you go visit them, there's a bridge over it, and there's a thing on the bridge that says Gayoso Bayou." Yeah, I've seen that. Now that I think about it, but so did it? Does it? Um, I know there's some twists and turns along the way, but ultimately, does it empty into the Mississippi River? Yes. So it empties into the Wolf River, which then empties into the Mississippi River. And so, where? Oh, oh, where? What is? Is where did it? What's the origin? Is it like a stream or where's the water? Where's the water come from? Do you know? Right. So it's surface fed. So it's water that's coming from uh, rainwater runoff mostly. So it's surface water, not spring water. Uh, And it's receiving, you know, follows that truism of of water, right? So water is always flowing downhill into larger and larger streams. So the Gayoso Bayou receives other smaller, even smaller creeks. So uh, I found one that was called the Betty, Gayoso Betty. And there was one that's called DeSoto. And so it receives those. So those flow into it. So those flow into it. So all the surface like rainwater is flowing into these smaller creeks, which are flowing into the Gayoso Bayou. And then the Gayoso Bayou receives the Quimby Bayou. 
which is another creek. And then those flow into the Mississippi River, or flow into the Wolf River, which then flows into the Mississippi River. So basically, because of the t- the topography, this value is a vehicle to receive rainwater and then, you know, and then get rid of it, essentially. Exactly. So it's draining. The, the bayou system that's here, at least historically, drained about 5,000 acres of land. So... Because of where it's located, um, Gazoo Bayou was just very important to the city's development. So tell us about that. So the early city, when it was developed, the eastern boundary of the city was the Gayoso Bayou. And it's it's really interesting when you look at maps of the city, sometimes it's called Gayoso Bayou and sometimes it's called Bayou Gayoso. And they seem to have been used pretty interchangeably more so in the 19th century, it was Bayou Gayoso. And then once you get to the 20th century, it starts flipping around. But when you look at the original maps of the city, that outer boundary is the Gayoso Bayou. So you've got streets conforming to a fairly rigid grid pattern until they hit the Gayoso Bayou, which you mentioned twists and turns so it kind of comes up straight against some planning. So that's with the eastern boundary of the city. And what a year would that have been? That would have been about 18, well, 1819 when the city was very first laid out. Okay. That's just, when you think about how much the city has sprawled now, that's just hard to wrap your mind around. That was um, the eastern boundary. And was it, were there bridges over it? I think I, before we got on the, before we got on the, Call. I think I mentioned to you that I had heard that, you know, it was a little bit of a journey to travel mm-hmm. over the bayou. And so some wealthy people had, you know, sort of weekend houses in the quote unquote country and would travel over the bayou to, um, you know, to get fresh air. Yeah, there were there were footbridges that went over it in places. I think eventually there became some as the city grew and there was the need to go over the bayou more as people were living on the other side of it. There were footbridges, there were some stone bridges, plank bridges at least. And so it became something you had to navigate around. So was it used for I mean, we talked about drainage, but was it used for any other practical purposes? Did people, you know, was it, was there enough water that you could transport goods on? Or did people, you know, now you can get down into some of these creeks and actually walk. Did people travel on it? What was, do you know what that was like? I haven't found any records to show that. So I'm, I I honestly don't know. And do you know, like, was it how much water was in there? And so that would have depended on the season. So there were some seasons where, uh, when there's not as much rainfall, it would be a very slow moving stream. Uh, when there's a lot of rain, so the months of the year in Memphis, where you know, in the in the spring, especially when we get lots of rain, it would be very fast moving. And then during really big rain events, it could become. Uh, I've seen newspaper records where they call it torrential (laughs) and start comparing it to say it's moving so fast an ocean liner could go through it, uh, which is obviously hyperbolic, (laughs) but it changed a lot depending on what the weather was doing, which is part of it being a a drainage system as opposed to a a groundwater fed system. And so was the, was, 
Gaius of Bayou being paved over, was that just a natural consequence of development? There needed to be a street there, or was it more sort of intentional? We need to sort of pave this over. And maybe I do want to talk about yellow fever, and maybe this is the right time to talk about that. I don't know um, if those so things... It was, it was definitely intentional. Um, so the Gaius of Bayou was very smelly. This was not uh, some pristine waterway <laughs> that was, it was gross for a few reasons. So one reason was that, and all the outhouses were dumped into there. Probably. So, so we can talk about the yellow fever for a second. So the perception during the yellow fever epidemics in the 1870s is that uh, the fever is caused by miasma. So bad air. And, you know, we know now that it was caused by the Aedes aegypti mosquito, and that was the vector. But at the time, people thought it was all of this bad air. And so, and Memphis was a smelly city. I mean, it was pretty well known as a smelly place. <laughs> and so, the Gayoso Bayou was one of the smelliest places. The smelliest place in the smelly city. The smelliest city. place in the smelly city. <laughs> Sounds awful. The perception was that yellow fever is spreading along the Gayoso Bayou. And so we have to do something about the bayou to keep there from being another epidemic. Uh, That was the perception. The reality, now knowing what we do about disease vectors and a really interesting dissertation that was done in 20. 11 that used uh, GIS and mapped the spread of the fever, it really spread along major transportation routes. So it spread along Main Street and Second Street and perpendicular to the river. It wasn't going along the bayou because it was where people were living. Well, it's funny. If If you think that it was spread by mosquitoes, you'd think the water would be the, you know, the, where they, where it traveled. Well, but the thing about it is it's a moving body of water and mosquitoes need stagnant water. And so it it probably didn't help, but it wasn't the the main driver of it, the same way that people living in close proximity to each other and traveling along, you know, established roadways were. Uh, probably there were puddles on some of those streets, oh, main yeah. and second for sure. So when did the paving so when did that paving process start? So it started uh, during Boss Crump's reign, about 1910. Um, but I would, if it's okay, could I talk for a minute about why it was so stinky? Yes, please. Okay. Because <laughs> I just thought this was fascinating because a lot of times, um, so I'm a historian by training, and you get a lot, it, it's easy to get lost in all of the newspaper accounts and the, um, I get not dryness. I don't think it's dry, but you don't always get to engage all of your senses. <laughs> and so um, I found some newspaper accounts of people who'd visited Memphis talking about the Gayoso Bayou. So part of the reason it was so smelly was because people, there wasn't indoor plumbing. So people had privies that backed up to the bayou. And so they were dumping raw sewage into this, which is then flowing, of course, into the Wolf River and the Mississippi. They also had ones that were nearby, but when it rained, it would 
bring everything downstream into the bayou. And then sometimes the Mississippi River backs up into the bayou. As, as the water level in the river rises, if it gets above there, it starts backflowing. And as the river backflows, it's bringing in mud and silt with it. And then as the water level goes back down, it leaves that silt behind. And it's just all sitting there smelling. Which is full of organic matter. And so as it starts breaking down, it's starting to smell. And then you've got trash that's going in there. And I found one really disgusting quote about someone was saying, yeah, you just find dead cats and goats in it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, if you're thinking that bad air is what's causing an epidemic, I mean, the Gayoso Bayou is pretty bad air. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if, if that makes perfect sense to me that people would think that that was the source of the yellow fever knowing what the, the limited information people had at the time. That sounds disgusting. Yeah. So you've got footbridges and there's an open creek bed running through, but it's not an idyllic. <laughs> I have this, I had this image of ladies with their little handkerchiefs over their nose <laughs> going over the footbridges. I see that. Okay, well, thanks for elaborating on that aroma aspect. No, I just feel like we don't get enough of that when we talk about history. Well, the funny thing <laughs> is, I always one thing I always say about Memphis Metropolis is there's you know there's not many visuals, so you really have to tell the story in other ways, and you've done a good job um, of, of of adding the element to the. Um, to the audio. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm talking to Caroline Carico, and we're talking about Gayosa Bayou. So um, I want to talk about Catfish Bay, which you, you wrote about in your article. But um, but bef before, just going back to my other question about yes. when, the, when it started, uh, the paving over process started. Right. So it started about the 19 in the 19 teens when during when boss Crump was the the ruler in Memphis. Right. I don't think can be overstated how how uh, what he said went. Um, so part of the solution to as as Memphis was coming out of the yellow fever epidemic um, before before Boss Crumb came, there was the whole Warring Sewer system, which is uh, actually incredibly important in the development of the city, which is this idea of we need to separate, have separate sewer systems for sewage and for stormwater runoff. And so the Gayoso Bayou is stormwater runoff. It's not, there's no sewage running through it anymore. And so once they separated that out, it became you know, less stinky for one. Uh, so that was part of this process. But then also as the city expanded, you know, it's easier to put, if this, if the, this waterway is underground, you can pave on top of it, which is what ended up happening. Uh, they also built a pumping station, which is called the Gayoso pumping station. And it's on, I looked it up, it's on the corner of Sassafrans and Front Street in Uptown. And it's still there. And there's an impoundment area there. So when the water gets too high in the bayou, instead of flooding, they can release some of that water into the river. So okay. that was all part of the same process. Yeah, I want to do some, some of these pumping station buildings are really interesting. I want to do, I mean, first of all, functionally, but also architecturally. So 
I want to do it. I'd like to do a Memphis Metropolis about some of those pumping stations too, at some point. So, so your article in storyboard, which and I'm going to put a link to the article in the show notes for the podcast version of the show, because it's really an interesting article. I mean, people should check out storyboard anyway, but I, but this article you know, contains a lot of good information that we don't have time to get to today. But you talked about Catfish Bay, which is, I don't want to call it a neighborhood exactly, but um, but where was Catfish Bay and what was its relationship to Gayosa Bayou? Right. So Catfish Bay is actually one of the harder things to research with this because it was happened so early in Memphis's history. So the, the, the neighborhood, I guess it's kind of, it's a bend in the bayou where the, it got wider as it went into the Wolf river. So it becomes kind of a protected Harbor almost. And where was that? Can you locate that for us? So, okay. So Catfish Bay is kind of, it's hard to locate where exactly it was because it doesn't show up on the maps that I've found. So the best that I can find was in 2015, the Memphis Business Journal did an article that put the lake's location to the current corner of 4th Avenue or 4th Street and Willis Avenue. So So it was a bend in the bayou. It was a bend in the bayou and it was slow moving. It was very slow moving to the point where it seemed very placid and still. And so the reason it became important is because flatboats that were coming down the Mississippi River would need places to stop that were protected. And it's important to remember that at this time, there was no Wolf River Harbor. The harbor didn't come into existence until the late 60s, 1960s. And so there wasn't a protected place. As right now, the Wolf River Harbor is very slow moving and is a, is a calm water area. They didn't have that then. And flatboats don't have much steering. They were uh, very rectangular. Their whole purpose was to move things downstream. They couldn't go they couldn't go upstream. Like a smaller version of a barge. Yes. And so the whole keelboats were able to go upstream, but flatboats could only go down. And so people who were traveling the Mississippi River a lot of times were taking stuff to New Orleans. And the idea is once you get the flatboat down, you scrap it. And then the people would return walking or on horse to get and then later on on steamboats to get back up. So Catfish Bay was a place where they could stop. So you've got this area where people, I mean, some people stopped and we're just stopping over and some people stayed and there was an availability of cheap lumber. And so people built, some people had houseboats, some people built shanties and Catfish Bay was a derogatory term. Like people, wealthier neighbor, wealthier residents called it Catfish Bay. And so this would have been, by the 19 by the 1830s it was really considered a public nuisance by some memphians obviously the people who lived there did not consider it a nuisance <laughs> but the um, mayor isaac rollins proposed raising the neighborhood and that met with a lot of resistance and it was a point of contention during the mayoral races and seth wheatley won who was not for raising the neighborhood but somebody overturned a barge of tannery waste, which just killed the fish that lived there, made it unlivable, and people kind of scattered. But the bones of this neighborhood were there. Was that an accident, or was it the equivalent of like an insurance fire? 
Yeah, we're think, uh, it, it seems to be that the understanding is that it's more like an insurance fire, that it was vigilantes. So people couldn't live there anymore, but all the structures remained. Yeah, and so people people stayed in that general area, which is where the Pinch neighborhood developed, which is where many immigrants stayed and started their lives in Memphis. Okay, but eventually it was, I guess it was raised and redeveloped. Yeah, and the bay doesn't really exist on maps so i'm constantly trying to to locate other ones and see if i can get more specific about where it was yeah that's it's super interesting so the um so going back to the to the bayou for a minute so you mentioned early in the sh- in the show that um that the in in the uptown neighborhood Actually, right. I think right on Willis Avenue, um, near the Bridges Building, there's still some. The Bayou's open, mm-hmm. and it's some, and it's green space. And I guess I'm just sort of wondering about that location. I mean, I think it's green space now, but you know, does it flood there? And then I know that St. Jude wanted to build a parking garage. Was that actually going to be on top? I realize I'm asking a million different questions. It is. But- so that was it was going to be on top, um, which was part of how the the neighborhood residents in Greenlaw and Uptown, one of the reasons that they were protesting the parking garage was that there wasn't a study done to show how this would impact flooding. And so it can still flood. Uh so this is the whole area is considered a FEMA flood zone. And so anytime you build in a floodway, you there's extra permitting that you have to go through and certain extra steps that the builders have to take to protect them. And so the whole the bayou is still there underground and it's still serving as stormwater drainage for this area. And so the pumping station is there to prevent flooding, but flooding can still happen. And there's been, the city has ongoing Gayoso Basin studies that are have been done and are being done to look at where flooding is an issue because it still is and people still report it. So it's still, even though we can't see it <laughs> most of the time, it's still very important to our built environment to know where it is and to pay attention to what we're doing on top of it. So Caroline, you know, some people have actually been go into those tunnels and what about you? Have you done that? I have not. Um, I am not a fan of the dark. (laughs) I've read other people's stories about it and uh, I've talked to Jimmy Ogle, former Shelby County, retired Shelby County historian. Yeah, I've heard he's been in there. Many times. Um, He actually sent me an email after, after I posted my story to tell me uh, about some of his <laughs> adventures. And uh, I've also read about it in High Ground News. And there is a great article in Memphis Magazine, too, actually linked to them in my article. So if people are interested, they can find the pictures and see what it looks like. Because it's a very interesting to see how even the conveyance tunnels have changed over time as the streets above them have changed. That's really interesting. I'm with you. I wouldn't go in there, I don't think. I'd be afraid there'd be animals and rats and that kind of thing. I'm curious about it, but I'd rather see, you know, the video that someone else has shot. I am okay letting other people do the urban exploration. (laughs) 
so Caroline, why, um, I guess last question, the, so I know you said you're a historian and you're mm-hmm. obviously interested in history, but what about Gail? So Bayou, you know, got you excited and wanting to do more research and Catfish Bay wanting to do more research and write an article about it. Like what's, what's what, that we haven't talked about already. What's just really interesting to you about it. So there are some really great artistic maps of Memphis, of early Memphis. And there are these, uh, they're called perspective maps and they're available on the library of Congress's website. You can look at them in really high resolution And when you look at them, it is so clear that there is a a stream running through the city of Memphis. And I've lived here my entire life and I have driven down those streets and I have never knowingly driven over (laughs) a stream, a stream bed. And so I was so curious, what is this thing and where did it go? Because waterways don't just disappear. Somebody has to make decisions. And then I think all good historical writing comes from asking why. So it's not just where did it go? It's why did it go? Why did people want to move this? And there's also um, my background is in exhibit curating. And I'm really interested in the connection between natural history and cultural history. And so it became this question of, well, if you're going to ask why did it get moved? You have to understand why it exists in the first place. So that's that's why. And also, I knew that there had been a historic marker for Catfish Bay during the city's sesquicentennial. And it's been down for, it got stolen years ago. But I was always just curious. I'd heard about Catfish Bay, and I had to know what it was. So the monument's not there. Nope, the marker's not there. Okay. Wait, we should get it replaced. That seems yeah. important. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> we'll get Jimmy Rout on that. Yeah. <laughs> He's been on the show. Oh, good. <laughs> but yeah, I got in- I got interested by maps. And okay. I'm well, I'm I'm, I'm I'm I love maps, especially old ones. So I made a note of that. I don't think I've seen I've got some old, really they're, you know, just tourist maps and stuff, but not that old, and I'd love to get on the Library of Congress website and check them out. Oh yeah, they're scanned really high res so you can zoom in very closely and it shows buildings that were there. So highly recommend. So what other you know urban infrastructure do you want to investigate from a historical perspective? Ooh, high up on my list is President's Island. Oh yeah. That's, that it has a fascinating cultural history. And I'm also really interested in the natural history of that piece of land and then how it's played into how it's developed over time. Okay. That's my my big one. I'm super interested in that. Okay. Well, once you do that, you have to come back and talk about it. President's Island is, um, is fascinating. Oh, I agree. I've, I've barely scratched the surface. I want to know so much more. <laughs> okay. All right. Sounds like there's plenty of future programs in here. I, I agree, Emily. So you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to Caroline Carrico, who's a program manager and associate editor of Storyboard. 
And we've been talking about Gayosa Bayou and historic infrastructure and all kinds of cool things. So Caroline, thank you so much for coming on. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, part two of another fascinating show about infrastructure. Thank you, Emily. Glad to be here. You know, I think maybe the last show you were on, we're talking, we talked about infrastructure. You know, I had Robert Connect, who's the public works director for the city of Memphis on talking about the federal infrastructure bill and its potential implications here in Memphis. And if anyone is an infrastructure buff like me, um, they can go back into the show archives at memphismetropolis.com or on Facebook or actually on the WYXR archive and listen to that program. Because I thought that was kind of, and this is actually kind of an interesting backwards bookend um, because that is really talked about infrastructure and what's happening right now. But right. before we talk about, there's actually some, some interesting history that I want you to, to, that I want us to talk about in terms of Memphis. But before we did that, Charlie, I was sort of reflecting on just sort of the broader issue. You know, I, the middle-aged me, decided to go to urban planning school. And before that, of course, I was aware of infrastructure. I'm, I drove on the roads. I flushed the toilet. I mean, it's I mean, not to be vulgar, but I mean, I, but I, but I did not. And I, of course, I understood how how important those were to the livability of a city, but I never really um, stopped to think about the connection between those things and and how cities and towns in our country um, and elsewhere as well, but in our country develop. So put your, can you put your planning professor hat on for for a moment and just talk about infrastructure and how um, th- how important it, it, it was and is to how how communities developed. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely central. Um, and if you think about it and some of the stuff that we'll talk about and reflecting on the, the history of the Gayo Sabayu and, and its role in infrastructure in Memphis is, you know, infrastructure, the, the development of new infrastructure was really critical to saving urbanization from declining public health, right? So cities in the late 1800s were, were disgusting places where you know people would just kind of toss their sewage out uh, into the streets and let it sort of drain away. Um, and of course that led to all kinds of, as we had people sort of clustering together in, in tight housing conditions, uh, that was just completely unsanitary. And you know if we did not develop a way to, to deal with that, um, develop a sewage system, then, you know, urbanization would have not continued. We wouldn't have the advances that we have now. Uh, so it was necessary to, to allow for cities to exist, to continue to exist. But then moving forward, you have to think about the relationship between uh, infrastructure and the fiscal health of cities, infrastructure and the growth of cities. So as we start to expand outward, the more people that move farther away from the city, the more new infrastructure that you need to support that development. So you need new roads, 
you need new schools, you need new sewer lines. And those things can be a fiscal drain on a city if, as people move outward, you have to build more of that. That means that the stuff that's already built is being you know, less utilized, half used, but you're still paying the same amount to maintain it. Um, and so you can really either allow that, um, that growth to drive infrastructure costs, or you can use how you plan for infrastructure to control the way that your city grows. And we've done the former here in Memphis. We let infrastructure you know, basically drive the development of the city. And we have the scenario that you that you described, which is that we're, until recently, we were constantly building new roads, community centers, firehouses on the fringes of the community. And the ones that we had in the city were underutilized. And, you know, the, it's just very, very difficult for the citizens to pay for that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think about you think about sewers specifically. Um, you know, we've had we had for for decades during the, during the sprawl decades a sewer policy that was focused on preparing unincorporated areas for future annexation, rather than focus on focusing on existing neighborhoods. So really, before 1969, the city's sewer policy was that sewers were extended subdivision by subdivision, which makes sense. Uh, so the city was providing that service as a city service. So if a developer wanted to build a new subdivision, that developer had to ask the city to annex that land so the city would build a sewer, put the city kind of in the driver's seat. But somehow in 1969, the Memphis City Council was persuaded by developers that extending sewer lines was an investment in its own future since those areas would later be annexed. The idea was kind of just just do the sewers first. Uh, That will drive development. And then you can later annex that. But what ended up happening in a lot of cases is that the developers got their sewer extensions, they built their houses, but then when it came time for annexation, the buyers of those houses organized against Memphis uh, and would not be annexed. So you had city residents contributing to building this infrastructure that led to sprawl and kind of investing in their own neighborhoods decline. Also, it just seems like the citizens are paying for all that. I mean, in some communities, the developer is asked to pay for for new infrastructure and through developer fees and assessments. And that's always been politically unpalatable here. Yeah. And that's a state legislation issue that we can't charge those uh, development impact fees. Um, you know, there's some regulation. I can't exactly remember what it is, but in order to be able to charge a development impact fee, you have to have a certain amount of growth over a certain period of time. And that's just not something that uh, most localities are going to see. So it's, it becomes impossible to do because of state regulation. Well, and I think the, the reasoning here was that the, you know, the property taxes, essentially the infrastructure and the road construction would pay for itself. And that has not been the case. Right. So if, if anyone, if any listeners are interested, um, there's an engineer, a fairly well-known engineer called uh, Charles Marone that wrote a really interesting book called Strong Towns, and he calls himself a reformed traffic engineer <laughs> and really looking at um, you know the cost of roads and infrastructure. The book is um, actually a really dynamic read. I'm probably making it sound dull because of the subject matter, but it, and he's and he's been here a couple times to speak. He's really an interesting speaker. So if anyone wants to read uh, a little more about the topic, since we probably already went 
too much into the weed for some people. But anyway, it's a really interesting book. I, yeah, I second that recommendation. So, Charlie, kind of on a related subject, I was talking about, you know, I learned all this stuff in planning school. But um, you were telling me earlier that the that the actually the planning profession got started in the wake of um, these public health issues that made um, urban living pretty unsanitary. Yeah, there are lots of connections between between those issues. So, you know, the kind of the discipline of public health and urban planning emerging together in really like the mid 1800s. Uh, when the connection between health and where and how we live became more obvious to see uh, and how we, we realized that how we lived had, to, had a lot to do with how we caught disease. Um, we first kind of discovered the connection between overcrowded, unsanitary housing and, and the spread of cholera and tuberculosis and yellow fever. Um, and there's a, there's a famous map that we talk about uh, in planning and in public health called John Snow's Ghost Map. Uh, and this was a me- this was in London, drawn by a, a medical doctor, that really launched epidemiology and and became the the impetus for for modern urban infrastructure. And it was a a map of deaths that occurred from cholera, uh, cholera outbreak in London in the Soho neighborhood in 1854, at a time when we didn't know what the cause of cholera was. But John Snow thought this is probably a waterborne disease, so he actually went door to door asking local people about their drinking habits, where they got their water from while they were carrying dead bodies on carts down the street. Uh, And he was able to build an argument that there was a single water pump on Broad Street that was responsible for the outbreak that had been contaminated by people washing diapers uh, near this water pump. So he he made this map that had black marks on every house where there was a death uh, and people had used this water pump. And he was able to show that the cholera radiated out from that pump on, on this particular location on Broad Street. And that led to this new focus on creating infrastructure that enabled clean water supply and removal of sewage. Um, and so, you know, hugely influential in this big overlap between infrastructure and planning and public health. So that was the first sort of graphic depiction yeah. of a public health crisis, it sounds like. Yep. Early, early GIS. I didn't, I didn't, I don't remember hearing about that map. That's really interesting. Well, since we're back in the 19th century anyway, let's stay there for a minute and, um, and talk about, um, you know, Caroline Carico's, her article and, and our discussion about the Gauss of Bio, which I thought was fascinating. So what were your thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, I love to hear the sort of untold stories or the hidden stories of the history of, of a place. Um, and I, I thought her, you know, her coming to the, that question of what is this bayou? I don't see any bayou, uh, and realizing that, yeah, it's there, it's just underground. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of important things that we can talk about related to, you know, what happens when we, we change the way our natural systems work by paving over them, uh, for development or paving over them to turn them into something else. Uh, a lot of impacts of that. That's really interesting. Well, also the you know, the the interesting idea that back, you know, when transportation was a lot less, uh, transportation systems were a lot less robust than they are today, even things like bayous were natural boundaries for cities. Yeah. I mean, you think about, you know, how you determine what a particular area is and how far out you go, um, those natural 
natural systems are are the definition to be delineators. Uh, and you know they exist because um, water flows downhill, and and you know that sets up a, a certain boundary that is not man-made, that, that that's there first, that's what exists. So Charlie, what about the, I mean, one of the things that helped, that, that came right after that, um, I guess the yellow epidemic or was an important innovation after that was the separation of, you know, sanitary sewers and the water system. Mm-hmm. And I mean, talk about that just as an innovation generally. And then I think um, Memphis was important in an important innovator in that, which I didn't know. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know this, that, that Memphis was really a, an innovator in sewer design and, and really in city planning really early on. Um, so, yeah, you talked about the public health conditions in the late 1870s and yellow fever. Uh, and like I said earlier, cities were, were just dirty places at the time. It was not just Memphis. Sewer systems themselves, sewer systems as underground pipes that carried wastewater away, both storm and household, were only introduced in 1855. So, you know, the idea that Memphis was dirty in 1870, well, a lot of cities were. Uh, that was kind of the norm, uh, dumping household waste into into cesspool ditches uh, that in Memphis ultimately made it into the bayou. People were largely- Basically, it was, it was one pipe system and everything went in it. And it was, well, before the sewers, it wasn't even a pipe. It was just sort of ditches on the, on the side of the road or natural waterways. Right. Um, and so when Memphis was dealing with this yellow fever outbreak, you know, half the population had disappeared, either had moved out or had died. Um, and there was really a bunch of Memphis elites who had escaped to St. Louis to figure out what to do. Uh, and they came up with an action plan really based on public infrastructure to preserve public health, which ultimately was cleaning out the bayou, uh, building a public water system and innovating a sewer design system. And so... They, the, there were, 1855, the, the sewer system was sort of put into place, uh, but the first sewer systems are what's called a combined sewer overflow system. And really, there are still a lot of cities that use a combined sewer overflow system. Most of them are small cities, but even New York City, Philadelphia, Nashville, all use combined sewers. And, and these are essentially networks of very large underground pipes that collect both rainwater runoff and industrial wastewater and household wastewater, toilet waste, all in the same very large pipe and they use gravity and pumping to send that all off to a treatment plant. Um, the problem with those combined systems is that when there's heavy rain, those pipes can't always handle the magnitude. So there's an outlet valve that prevents those pipes from backing up into the streets or into people's homes. There's an overflow outfall pipe that's directed to a natural body of water, a river or a lake. But when that overflow happens, you're sending runoff and household sewage into that river. So Memphis ended up with a different system, not because they thought the combined overflow approach was bad, but because they couldn't afford it. Um, You know, the city had sort of repealed its charter to avoid um, creditors and couldn't issue debt. So they couldn't afford to build this massive underground pipe and tunnel system. So the separate system is more was less expensive. Yeah, this, so, that other way sounds disgusting. <laughs> it is disgusting, and a lot of cities still use it. Uh, so yeah, so, they couldn't they couldn't afford to do it. it also, it sounds kind of inefficient because you're processing, you're sending all of this combined material to a water processing plant. Seems like a lot less 
efficient to do all because you're processing things that don't need processing. Yeah, you're sending, water. you're sending clean water to be processed along with wastewater. Um, so yeah, the city couldn't afford it, and so they there was a civil engineer, George Waring, at the time that was pitching this new design that would just treat the household waste individually. Um, and there's a street named after him now in Memphis. <laughs> oh, Waring Road, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, well, it, and that's a very swank area named after a sewer innovator. I wonder sure, if people that live around Waring know that. And it's interesting because it's a street in Memphis named after someone that was a uh, a colonel in the Federal Army, not in the uh, Confederate Army, uh, and actually had been in combat against Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, but anyway, so he was pitching this new idea that would just treat the household waste separately. And because it didn't need to also deal with the, the stormwater, you could use much smaller pipes to do it. Um, and so his plan was was way less expensive than the other plans that the city looked at to build a combined system. It really essentially used uh, two main sewer lines on either side of the bayou and then six inch sewer pipes in alleys that would then branch off to each individual house with even smaller pipes that the homeowners would be required to connect to. So using much smaller pipes um, that did not require as much money to build. And at the start, it only dealt with the the, the household sewage. The, the stormwater stuff just kind of dealt with on its own. And eventually the stormwater stuff was dealt with by concretizing, channelizing the bayou. So you had the separate system of treating the, the household waste and the, the stormwater waste. And that system actually became replicated all over the country. And as it expanded, as Memphis grew, that system was expanded. Um, and it really ended up coalescing with the city. Beautiful movements that led to the development of our park and parkway system that coincided with the expansion of the wearing sewer system. Um, so part of our, our, our rich planning history uh, in, in early times in Memphis. Okay, who knew? So if you're, just, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm talking to Charlie Santo from University of Memphis, and we're talking about sewer systems, of all things. <laughs> of so so, um, so, what about artesian wells? Where does the, Those are important, and where do those factor into the whole sewer equation? Yeah, so this is sort of the same time period, right? As as, as the sewer expansion and innovation and the city beautiful. What is artesian anyway? I'm going to ring my bell. What does artesian mean? All right, so around the same time, uh, as we developed the sewer system and were able to clean the clean the mess up, people started moving back. The city started to grow again. Needed water for those folks, um, and really needed a water supply to properly flush this new sewer system because they're. Essentially, attached to the sewer system were large underground toilet tanks that would fill up with water, and then once a day, that that water pressure would cause them to flush out. But you needed to feed that with a with a public water system. So, around that time, 1870s, 1880s, there was not a public water service. People were getting their water from rainwater cisterns and shallow wells that were sitting near these cesspool ditches, and really, that was the standing water that that bred the, the mosquitoes that carried the yellow fever. Um, so we needed to fix that. We needed more water to, to serve the, the new system and, and the, the population coming back. Uh, so in 1882, there was a, a, a public utility and the Memphis Water Company was formed. And they were essentially pumping in water from the Wolf River, which was really muddy and, and not, not ideal. Uh, so the artesian well came about because of private innovation, actually. So there was a, an ice company, uh, the Bolin Hughes Ice Company, uh, where the, the 
the, the leader of this company was trying to find a source of pure water and thought, you know, maybe if I drill into the ground, I'll find a spring. And people thought he was nuts, but he eventually uh, started this experimental well on Court Street in 1887 and got 350 feet down and hit this artesian well, which is water trapped under a kind of a sandy aquifer that was pressurized by a clay lever on top of it, a clay layer on top of it. So that pressure, as soon as they hit it with the, with the drill, that caused the water to kind of spew out of the ground without even need for a pump. Um, so that was the birth of our, our magical Memphis tap water. Well, I was going to ask because the also, you know, there's been, of course, until a couple of years ago, I don't think a lot of us even knew what an aquifer was, let alone that we needed to protect it. Yeah. And I'm being a little flip, but you've been a tremendous amount of pressure of, um, attention paid over the last couple of years to the quality of our water and the yeah. need to protect it. It sounds like this was the beginning of tapping into that water source. Yeah, and there's been a lot of education around that. And so at the university, the, uh, there's a center called CSER, which is the Center for Applied Earth Science and Engineering Research that do a lot of education around this. And they've got a great little kind of interactive uh, timeline on the development of Memphis's water and sewer system that we can link in the in the show notes. Okay, well, that's really interesting. So um, I know you have a song you want to tell us about, but, but before we do that... Um, in the ver- beginning, we we're talking about Gayosa Bayou. You talked about how it was paved over, and of course, a lot of the you know the bayous here are paved over. Um, In order one to sort of direct the heavily polluted uh, systems, like let's get those all corralled together and direct that polluted water out of here, but also to allow for increased developable land. Um, and so we're trying. We're, we're seeing some cities trying to reverse that now to, to daylight these underwater streams and that, you know, just remove them from the buried conditions. Um, and ecologists, landscape architectures, really landscape architects uh, talk about a lot of these kind of overlapping benefits of doing that. There's engineering, economic, ecological, social benefits. Um, it could be an amenity. Yeah, exactly. You're creating a, you know, a linear park with a, with a stream with a water feature running through it. Um, but the reality is that that, as developments of our, of our development patterns of our cities have evolved, that the early infrastructure of just let's channelize this stream and run all wastewater or our stormwater down it become insufficient. There's too much impervious surface, too much development that has altered the natural topography and the natural flow of water that these systems can't carry at all. So that results in, in flooding and damage. Um, and you can you can alleviate a lot of that by opening these things back up creating more of a natural floodplain, slowing down the flow of that water, um, running the running water through an, an open air stream allows it to self-oxygenate, uh, and that reduces the pollution and the need for treatment of, of channelized water. So there are a lot of benefits to doing that. Um, and we've talked up, we've, we looked at uh, our department years ago when we did a plan for uh, the former Foot Homes development in, on Vance Avenue. Um, you, know, you talked earlier on the show about some of the other bayous in Memphis, Lick Creek and Cypress Creek, which are the ones that are visible and most above ground. Uh, there's also the Little Betty Bayou and the DeSoto Bayou, which feed into the, the Gayoso Bayou. And the Little Betty, Little Betty Bayou is visible for a small amount of area in Ellie Brown Park at Georgia and Orleans. But that would run underneath Foot Homes. And, you know, as a natural feature, water would drain into it. But when it gets buried... 
there's water that's not able to, to go where it would normally go and it kind of just becomes standing water. And so you would see in foot homes, the standing water at the base of these apartment buildings and, and mold developing uh, on the lower levels because of that standing water. Um, so part of the plan that, that we looked at was to, to daylight that the little bitty bayou um, to alleviate some of those water retention issues and to create an amenity uh, for the neighborhood. So there are opportunities to do this kind of daylighting stuff uh, in Memphis, for sure. But that's not in the works at the moment. Not that I know of, but, you know, we can we can lead a rally. It seems like a great idea. I can imagine people would, with all the children that are in public housing, people would be nervous about. I can just imagine people talking about kids falling in. <laughs> so, um but it sounds like a great idea, and it would be a nice amenity to have a water feature for for those apartments. Absolutely. So, Charlie, um, before we go, you're the Songs About Cities man. So, and you frequently pick a song, which we don't play. Someday we'll, someday someday. we'll do that. But um, you pick a song that you think is particularly relevant for the topic, and pulled deep into your imagination and selected a song for us. So tell me about that. Well, you mentioned earlier that there are songs, songs about bayous, lots of options we can choose from, but I'm going to go with uh, Jambalaya on the Bayou, Hank Williams, 1952. Uh, This is a song that's become his most covered song. Um, And he supposedly wrote this or began writing it while he was listening to Cajuns talk about food on the Hadical Caravan bus which the Hadical Caravan was one of the last traveling medicine shows. Uh, so kind of an interesting history to this song. So, you know, you'll recognize the, the lyrics, Son of the Gun, we'll have some fun on the bayou. Yeah, who did who who did the most popular version of that? I, uh, you know, I know, I know it, but I can't think about who it is. Someone like a Linda Ronstadt. I, it wasn't yeah. Linda Ronstadt, but someone like that. Because I don't think I've even heard the Hank Williams version. Really? Uh, I'm not sure who, who who did the most popular cover, but I know there are lots of them. Let's see, cover versions. Brenda Lee, Fats Domino, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, John Fogarty might be it. Could be. Yeah, that sounds about right. Or maybe Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Yeah, all of it up to I, listen, I listened to them back in the day. <laughs> okay. Well, this has been really interesting. Um, very interesting talking about you know, the sanitary sewer systems and infrastructure and how it's so important. So, okay. Well, you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM at Crosstown. I'm Emily Trenum, the Memphis Metropolis host. And in this part of the show, I've been talking to Charlie Santo, who's heads up the city and regional planning department, University of Memphis, one of our regular commentators. So as always, thanks for coming on the show, Charlie. You bet. Thanks, Emily. See you next time. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy. 